When you're a public figure and you decide to run for president, you make an announcement to kick off your campaign. What's the big question the campaign staff always has to settle? Where will the announcement be made? What will be the backdrop? What image will the public see in the background of a video clip on the nightly news? Now, if I were Jesus, the last place I would have wanted to stage this encounter was Caesarea Philippi. In Matthew 16, he and his disciples are about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, way outside the province of Galilee, all the way to modern-day Syria. So they're outside of King Herod's jurisdiction. At this point, Herod and the religious leaders are heating up the fire under Jesus. They're haranguing him every time he sets foot back in Galilee. So Jesus is kind of lying low. He's only coming back into the province occasionally and only on a very low-key basis. But now he takes his disciples on this big retreat Caesarea Philippi is not a Jewish area. It's mostly Gentile. In fact, Caesarea Philippi is a huge religious center for many of the religions of the day. For example, in the Old Testament, we find many references to worshipers of Baal. Baal was a major god of the Syrians. And here in Caesarea Philippi, we have a big Baal worshiper population. In fact, there were no fewer than 14 temples to Baal in the vicinity where Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. The city was actually known for a time as Baal Hermon, or Baal God. But then there was also meaning in the city for the Jews. Devout Jews revered the area because of the Jordan River. It runs through Israel and around this river so much of Israel's history is centered and it begins here at the base of Mount Hermon. And then have you ever heard of pantheism, the worship of nature? God's in the trees, God's in the soil. This religious concept uh, concept originates with the ancient god of nature called Pan. And a huge cavern just outside of Caesarea Philippi was regarded as Pan's birthplace. The city was actually named for Pan originally. It was called Panias. Many of the legends of the Greek gods took place here in Caesarea Philippi. Even today the city is still called Banias. The name hasn't changed much over the centuries. But in Jesus' day, it was called Caesarea Philippi because Herod the Great, the king who killed all the babies, trying to get rid of the baby Jesus, had built a massive white marble temple intended to inspire worship of Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire, as a god. And then when Herod died, his empire was split up between three of his offspring. His grandson, Herod Antipas, became the ruler down in Galilee. He's the one putting the heat on Jesus now. But Herod the Great had also had a relationship with Cleopatra and then had a son named Philip. And Philip got the northernmost part of the territory, which included Caesarea Philippi. So when Philip took over, wanting to make a good impression on the Roman government, he spruced up the temple even more. And he also changed the name of the city from Panias to Caesarea in honor of Caesar. But since there was already a city called Caesarea down, down on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, he decided to call it Caesarea Philippi, or Caesarea of Philip. He was sort of, sort of promoting himself as he promoted Caesar. He was a politician. Now, as you approached Caesarea Philippi, you could still be miles away, and you would already see, coming up on the horizon, the incredible white marble structure of the temple. This city was a symbol of worship. Each of the city's different religious systems had a certain glamour about it. 
uh, the worship, uh, worshipers of Baal had all their temples. The worshipers of Pan had the revered birthplace of their god. The Jews had the source of the great Jordan River, symbolizing their ancient religious traditions. The worshipers of Caesar had this breathtaking Taj Mahal of a temple and glistening white marble. And here, in the shadow of all this religious tradition and finery, sits a homeless, penniless carpenter from the backwoods of Galilee and his 12 ragtag friends, and they're hiding out from the federal authorities. And Jesus uses this location to establish his own authority over the universe. He didn't stage it the way today's campaign handlers would have staged it. also didn't make the kind of announcement I would have made. Instead, as he did so many times over the course of his ministry, he didn't start out with a statement or a declaration. He started out with a question. He made his disciples think. He probed their minds. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man is a term that was very common in ancient times. It's difficult to find a good translation of it in modern-day English, but maybe the closest we could come would be uh, mere human. No, that's not exactly right either. Uh, see, all through the Old Testament era, we find people referred to as a son of man. Uh, they were making the sort of distinction that says, I'm a son of man, I'm not a son of God. I'm just a human, I'm not divine in nature. But then in the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel 7.13, the prophet Daniel is given a glimpse of the future, and he sees Jesus. This is six centuries before the birth of Christ. And when Daniel writes out a description of this vision, he's inspired by God to refer to Jesus using this phrase, Son of Man. So now Jesus comes along, and as he fulfills the prophecy of Daniel from 600 years earlier, he uses the same phrase that Daniel used in the prophecies. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. The translators of the scriptures to distinguish between the regular use of the term Son of Man and the references to, uh, to Jesus put capital letters on it when it refers to Jesus. Jesus frequently called himself the Son of Man as a way of highlighting the fact that he had taken on the form of a human being for the duration of his earthly ministry. He was not only God, but he was also man. He was not only the Son of God, but he had also become the Son of Man, God in human form. Well, the disciples replied, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Uh, King Herod had started this story, that Jesus was actually John the Baptist. Herod had beheaded John the Baptist, but after Jesus raised a politician's daughter from the dead, Herod heard about that, and he said in Mark 6.16, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Herod and a number of other people felt that John the Baptist was so powerful spiritually that death couldn't hold him. Others thought Jesus was Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, come back from the dead. 
you know, today, 2,000 years later, this is still a belief of many Jewish people. When Jews celebrate the tradition of Passover, they still leave an empty chair at the table for the prophet Elijah in case this should be the year he returns. It's a practice based on the Old Testament prophecy of Malachi 4.5, which in fact says that God will send Elijah the prophet. But as Jesus explained in Matthew 17, this prophecy is actually a word picture. It's not literally Elijah who's coming back. It actually refers to John the Baptist, who had the same kind of ministry as Elijah, preparing the way uh, for God's kingdom by calling for people to repent. And then others thought Jesus might be the prophet Jeremiah or one of the other prophets of the Old Testament. Jeremiah lived at about 650 BC and he was known as the weeping prophet. He had a deep compassion for his people, but they rejected his message, turned away from God. Jesus was compassionate too. We've seen how, he, how grieved he was over people's pain and, and how their sinfulness was causing them suffering. So people made a connection, especially superstitious people. Down through the centuries, a whole body of superstition had grown up around the personality of Jeremiah. The rabbis had developed a story about how Jeremiah had gone into the temple before it was destroyed, and he supposedly took the Ark of the Covenant out and hid it. And when Messiah was about to return, Jeremiah would come back from the dead and produce the Ark. So you can see how people who were inclined to believe this kind of story might look at Jesus, uh, the compassionate teacher rejected by the opinion leaders of the day and say, hey, uh, here's Jeremiah. He's back. But Jesus didn't stop with the question, who do people say I am? That wasn't the point as far as Jesus was concerned. It was only the setup to get all the cards on the table. Now he zeroes in on what for Jesus was the real question. But what about you, he asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We can safely say that this is the central question of the entire Bible. Who do you say Jesus is? This is the question that, in a way, these Compass DVDs ask every week. Who do you say Jesus is? You can believe in God, you can be a good person, you can do good deeds, you can attend church till the seat of your pants turns the color of the chairs. But who do you say Jesus is? I have a friend in Pennsylvania who teaches school. She says Jesus was a really, really good teacher. But that's all. Maybe you know someone who isn't even sure Jesus even existed. He's just a legend. I've dealt with people who totally believe that Jesus existed, but to them he, he was a delusional fanatic like Adolf Hitler, an egomaniac. Who do you say Jesus is? You know, this is a question that makes people nervous because it's not culturally acceptable to be a follower of Christ. You can be a Christian, quote-unquote, in America today, and that word has a vague enough meaning to people that it doesn't really commit you to anything. You can be a churchgoer. That's more or less okay, too. You can believe in God, quote-unquote. Nobody really raises an eyebrow. But to be a follower of Christ and treat Jesus like an actual living personality, 
to acknowledge Him as the master of my life, to trust Him to be the one who decides my eternal fate, that's going too far. And yet, that's the question that has to be answered. People who are willing to acknowledge God but unwilling to acknowledge Jesus as God's Son are missing it because sending Jesus to us was God's way of bridging the gap between His total perfection and our deadly imperfection. We couldn't deliver ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. God was desperate to spend eternity enjoying us if we would be willing. But we weren't going to get to spend eternity in relationship with God if He didn't take drastic action. Sending Jesus was drastic action. So Peter answers the question. He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now the word Christ and the word Messiah are the same. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. They both mean the anointed one. Well, what does anointed mean? Anointing literally means to pour oil or rub ointment on a person or object. Throughout history, anointing has been used as a symbol of consecrating or setting aside an individual for a particular work or ministry. In the Old Testament, before you could become a priest to minister to the people, your, your designation for that function had to be commemorated by an anointing, the pouring out of a specially formulated type of oil over your head. Uh, anointing was also used as, to designate a new king in our Compass DVD series on the life of David. Uh, untidy Christianity. We take a look at that moment when David was still a, a, a boy and, and the prophet Samuel came to his house, poured oil on his head, anointing him as the king of Israel. In the Old Testament, the psalmist and the prophets look forward to the coming of the Messiah by referring to him as the anointed one. You can find references to Jesus as the anointed one in Psalm 2, Isaiah 61, Daniel 9. So Peter's saying here, Jesus you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one God promised to send us, to deliver us, to save us. You're it. It's no one else. You were designated for this role. This role can be fulfilled by no one else. You were anointed for it. You were appointed to it. I acknowledge it. I acknowledge you. You are the Christ. Now, I guarantee if you weave this into your conversation at the next neighborhood barbecue you attend or some party you're invited to attend this weekend, you'll get some interesting looks. Our culture doesn't want to need a Savior. Our culture wants to believe we're all okay. We just need to try a little harder. Peter was saying, I see that we can't make it on our own. We need help. And only you, Jesus and give it to us. So Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. You know, I really want to convince my friend in Pennsylvania that Jesus is the Son of God, but I can't. Only God, by the work of His Spirit, can draw a person to faith in Christ. We can set the stage. We can live our lives as an example of His love at work. We can pray fervently and faithfully for that person. That's as far as we can go. God won't let us interfere with that individual's free will. You know, some of us are praying desperately for our children to acknowledge Christ. Some of us are praying for a parent. Some of us are praying for a spouse who hasn't trusted Christ. Keep praying, but cut yourself some slack. You don't have the power to reveal Christ to that individual. All you can do is give yourself to Christ and let Christ be revealed in you and through you to that person. Let me pray for you. God, help us to reflect the love of Christ and how fully we've given ourselves to Him to those around us. Thank you for sending Him so that our perfection could be made perfect. And I pray especially for those of my friends who have loved ones that are still praying to come to faith in Christ. Inspire them, strengthen them, give them supernatural stamina, but also comfort them so that they can just, I guess, uh, lean back and relax and love that person and let you do your thing. And I thank you, Father, in the name of our Lord Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. Amen.